Isaiah chapter 49. And if you're going to come to a Wednesday night Bible study that is expositional as these are, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work for me, and it's a lot of work for you, but hopefully it's worth it. Resolving failures. Um, (laughs) Problem solving of the Lord. So God, in this chapter, again, notifies his people that he is very mindful of the Gentiles. That it's not all about Israel, though Israel made it all about Israel. And uh, it's something that the New Testament just doesn't let go. That God is about people. And that there are dispensations, there are periods of time where God does something this way. Before the flood, and then after the flood, and then the patriarchs, and then the law is given, and then the day of the prophets, and now we're in the age of the church, and still to come is the great tribulation period, the kingdom age. And these are dispensations. And the Lord has been preparing his people through the scriptures, through the prophets, and that's what we're getting. The servant of the Lord in Isaiah is mostly talking about this Messiah that they were Uh, to expect, who has become our Christ. He has come. And uh, he is, teaches clearly about in the Old Testament and New Testament what he's all about. And he's going to say at the beginning of this section that the Gentiles that are way out there, far off, he's after them. And he wants to use his people to get them. But his people will fail. They will forfeit that position, and he'll have to take over for them. Uh, So, the Lord Jesus took over the responsibilities of Israel when it it came to bearing the light of God's scripture. And uh, that is the way it is till this day. The church will eventually be removed, and then uh, witnessing will take place once again through the Jewish people. And both Jews and Gentiles will be saved and persecuted. So, looking now at verse 1, remembering that the Christ is the perfect fulfillment of all Israel failed to be, it says, Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. Yahweh has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He had... He has made mention of my name. So the servant speaks here himself. And of course it is Christ. And we gotta, we'll talk about that a little bit. But uh, these coastlands here are those areas in Gentile territories that are connected to trade routes from Israel and then from the Gentile territories throughout the world. The roads leading to distant nations the farthest regions of the earth. And not only did goods go back and forth, import-export, but so did information, news, bad and good alike. Uh, The New Testament church, we find Paul, it's recorded that he used all the roads he could get on to to bring the word of God. And those Romans, they built those roads, the Anation Way, the Appian Way. I mean, they, they were just road builders, and Paul... He knew that, and it facilitated bringing the gospel to uh, the Gentiles. And so here, God is saying, the coastlands, the Gentiles, they're on my radar. And I want you to listen to me. He says, take heed. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed. Well, how would the coastlands, how would the Gentiles ever get the word of Isaiah? Somebody would have to use those roads and those shipping routes, and they, they they did not. The Jews, again, really did not do it. And so he says, listen, essentially, he's saying, listen, O earth. Listen to me, take heed, you peoples from afar. This is, again, Messiah is now speaking, and it, it would have been the voice of Israel. But as I mentioned, they forfeited their role as light bearer. The church now has that role, but Israel remains the people of God. Uh, as a people, and they will be restored. It just right now, they're, they're not bearing the light. There's no light coming out of Judaism for anyone. So, uh, Mark chapter 15, 16, verse 15, 
We all should know this verse. Jesus speaking to his apostles after the resurrection. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, he doesn't mean beetles and, you know, moths and things like that. Certainly not snakes because they don't have ears. So it's just a very easy one to prove. So, of course, he's saying everybody created people. And uh, the Lord has called me from the womb. Now, Isaiah writes this some 700 years before the virgin birth. That's what he's talking about. We're about 1,200 years out of Egypt for the Jews. And in all that time, uh, you know, they had work to do, of course. But he's, he's announcing the, the, the virgin birth as we know it now. From the matrix of my mother, he has made, me, made mention of my name. Well, that's literal, literal not metaphorical. And uh, especially true of Jesus Christ. There have been others, a few others, that have been named before their birth. John the Baptist is certainly one that comes to mind. But, of course, Christ uh, is the primary. Verse 2 now. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. Well, he's prepared to deal with sin. The sword first appears in the Garden of Eden after the fall of man there in Genesis chapter 3. And it's, it's being handled by a cherubim to keep Adam and Eve away from the tree of life. The sword always means conflict. It's not a gardening tool. You don't work on your car with a sword. Man, I wish I had a sword. I could fix this. It's just, uh, it, uh, Jesus said, think not I came to be, bring peace, but a sword. There's going to be conflict. In Revelation 1, when he introduces, when John introduces the revelation of Jesus Christ, he mentions how Christ approached him. And said, he writes, Revelation 1.1, Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Of course, this is picked up throughout the scriptures. So the instruments mentioned here in verse 2 are weapons, not buildings or gardening tools. They are weapons. Israel had been unresponsive. And Messiah is going to do battle with them for not continuing with their assignment to bring light to the Gentiles, and amongst other things. The primary in this chapter is the Gentiles, but not, not but the Jews are going to be first in that, prior, in that order. And that picks up the New Testament too. I'll come to that. So the sword is a weapon that is used close enough to see the color of your opponent's eyes. You've got to get close if you're going to preach the gospel. I'm not a fan of handing out tracts and thinking, oh, people are going to just take that home, read it, and give their life to Christ. I, again, maybe they're in this country, maybe in other countries, but here I've never heard of it, anyone saying, I came to Christ by reading a tract. Now, there may be somebody, but I prefer, or I, and I get this from Scripture, I think the way to save souls is to get up close to them. People that are in your life, to be able to make eye contact. Uh, this, uh, you know, distance um, evangelism, it's, it's not uh, the primary way of reaching lost souls. And uh, so the sword, but there's a difference between the sword and the arrow, which is that polished shaft in his quiver. That's a long-range weapon, distant weapon. And, uh, you know... This Messiah that he is speaking of is going to call on resources that are necessary to engage his people with scripture, with conflict. The servant he will conquer by the power of his word. Now, the Hebrew word for mouth is often used idiomatically by the Jewish writers for the edge of a sword. That the words cut deep. The play on words is often there. And the power of speech is often an offensive weapon that offends. I mean, if you, you can say, as we all know, you say the wrong words, you, you offend somebody. And if you're not right, 
then you are the problem. But if you are right and it's delivery, then hopefully the other person will consider the cut. That's how conviction works. Somebody says something, they've got you. You're guilty. You're convinced that they are right in what they're saying, and you have to take steps to fix this. That's how people come to Christ. Hosea 6.5, Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Just not maliciously. You're not trying to hurt anybody. You're trying to save with, through truth. And, you know, the old saying, if the truth hurts, well, what do you, what's the alternative? Start lying to you so you don't get hurt. Well, we have whole churches that do that. They may not come right out and lie, but they suppress the truth. They hold back what needs to be said. And might as well say you're lying now. By keeping back what Christ wants to say to his people. Because there really is... The, the, the pulpit preaching is, is a unique feature of the church, of the synagogues, of the assembly. Because of what the Holy Spirit does with it. Not because you have a man standing behind a pulpit, but because you have the Holy Spirit standing in front of the man. Uh, that's how it works. Anyway, this New Testament, our New Testament, of course, uses the image of the Word of God as a superior weapon, as a sword. The Word of God cuts to the division of the soul and the spirit. And made me a polished shaft, he says here in verse 2. That's a bright arrow he's talking about. Uh, Jesus being distinct and outstanding, and no common uh, weapon is, is found associated with him. So there we have, we condense it, the pen is mightier than the sword, or the word is mightier than the sword. In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me. Secret and secure. Timings of God. John chapter 10, my father who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So this is the hand of Messiah. We know that he is, of course, Jesus of the New Testament. And that uh, so close with the Father, there's, he's part of the Godhead. Verse 3. And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. See, this is kind of confusing, but... It, looking at the context, it, it all comes together. It's confusing, maybe, just, you know, on the surface. But the Father speaks to the Messiah now, who is to come, and not the nation Israel. He's personifying Messiah as Israel. Now, this is not uncommon even amongst us. If you are, I, when I served on ship, in the, uh, in the Marines on a Navy ship, when the captain of the ship left the ship, they would announce the name of the ship is leaving. So, I, for instance, I, one of the ships I sailed on was the Inchon. And when the captain would leave the ship, you know, you'd be down below deck shining your shoes. And the announcement would be piped in. The Inchon departing, meaning the captain's leaving the ship. And when he would come back, Inchon arriving. Why didn't they just say, hey, the captain's leaving the boat? Because the ship was his. He was the personification of that ship. He's master and commander of that ship. Not like the old British Navy so much, but he still got a lot of juice. And so here we have a, a, a personification, Messiah as Israel. Because Israel failed to do what they were called to do, he assumes the task. The descendants of Jacob, they are called out in verses 5 and 6. They're singled out as by the patriarch, Jacob. And that gives us our distinction. You have Israel being Messiah in verse 3. But he's talking to the people of Israel. We get to verse 5. And so that will clarify it for us. So Messiah is called Israel in this verse by Isaiah uh, because of the failure of Israel. Um, and, and his mission field, incidentally, is Israel first before uh, he gets to the world. Looking at verse 4, I hope I'm not losing you on this stuff. It, it, it makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> it's like, uh, let's see if we can get it moving a little bit for you. 
Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with Yahweh and my work with my God. You're never going to have the incarnate Christ speak apart from being with the Father. Here he is complaining about failure. This is the voice of Messiah now. And telling us that his work is not easy. You know, no one can save everyone. God walking on the earth could not save everyone. And not that, uh, because he wouldn't force them to be saved. He would not violate their free will. And here what we have in verse 4 is internal dialogue out loud. It is uh, the humanity of Christ in dialogue with the Father being published for us. The Christ is just sort of saying, you have dialogue with God, don't you? I do too. Uh, you sometimes tell about that dialogue with God. Well, I'm telling you about this one. And God identifies with all who serve that when you serve, you'll, if you serve hard enough, you'll come to a place where you complain to God and say, I have sown much and I have reaped little. You are saying to God, I put a lot more into this than what I thought I'd get out of it. Now, God will bring that up with those in the book of Haggai, but in that case, they were more self-centered than God-centered, and they were being rebuked. But here, it is a fact that he said, I have labored in vain. But it's a surface failure. Because did Christ succeed? Was he pleased with the outcome of his ministry on earth, which began at the creation. Yes, he was, and we know that, because when we get to Isaiah 53, that talks about how he was rejected and abused. It says, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied, Isaiah 53, 11. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Now, would you like to bear somebody else's iniquities? especially a stranger, ultimately God will get it done. Believers are gained and will be gained. Unbelievers, they will be removed. At some point in a pastor's ministry, uh, they're, they're going to encounter this intruder of the sense of failure. Elijah did. I'm the only one left. Now they want to kill me. Jeremiah, every chapter of Jeremiah, man, he faced so much junk. Jeremiah 9, too, you know, he just, if I had a place, I could just go away. He wanted to just, I should read it, it's, it's so good. Well, it might not be good to you, because you might be guilty of something, but <laughs> who's not, right? Uh, Isaiah, um, Jeremiah 9, 2. Anybody else's heart on fire for Jeremiah? Maybe it's Elvira that your heart is on fire for. But anyway, Jeremiah 9, 2. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers, that I might leave my people and go from them. For they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. Well, there were people trying to kill him to, to just take him off the earth. But, uh, you know, he just, the sense of failure and just, I just want to get away. Of course, Paul had to face these things. Paul writes about it. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Now, he's writing that to Christians. It's not at a pastor's conference. It applies to pastors, but it's for all of us because we do get weary in the work. We have to guard against being weary of the work. You don't want to get to the place where you say, I'm sick and tired of it. I've had it. Well, you can do that before the Lord. You just don't want to do that in front of people. And maybe I can focus that a little bit. He says, yet surely my just reward is with the Lord. So, ministry. Uh, Christ pains in ministry. He was pained by ministry, but he was not disillusioned. And so there is a strong, the strong voice of the pastor in the pulpit. Spirit's upon him. He knows everything he is saying. is trying to back it all up with Scripture. But then, if the strong voice is in the pulpit, there's that stressed voice in prayer. 
And that's where he tells God all the things that are bugging him. And usually it's a pretty big stack. But he doesn't finish because he gets sick and tired after he just gets to the first two. (laughs) This isn't going well. So I I think it is one of the beautiful things about prayer is that we can say, we can tell God anything. And know that once we're finished with that, he expects us to get up and go get back to work. I like that under the terms of this world. I, I wouldn't want that in heaven. wouldn't be my first choice. But I like that I have that freedom that I, I don't f- have to feel like I have to try to hide something from God, which is silly. He's omnipotent. You can't hide anything from God. It's like a one-year-old playing hide-and-seek. It's just like, you can't do that. It's the way till they get to be 12 and go to Jerusalem. <laughs> Three days later, they found the Lord anyway. And my work, he continues, verse 4, and my work with my God. So he remained steadfast, resolved in spite of failures. John chapter 8, he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. That is something that we are to shoot for, to always please God. I, I like it. It's been said, God is easily pleased, but he's never satisfied. I believe that's true. And uh, it's um, encouraging in its own strange way. Verse 5, And now Yahweh says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. And so here you have, again, the Lord speaking about his relationship with the Father, uh, the Jews that are on his heart. Uh, Yahweh is answering him. It's, I know, it seems like it's almost schizophrenic. You have the Messiah speaking, who is part of the Godhead. And then you have the Father speaking. And which one is at what point? And if you follow the usage of the pronouns and the work that is being done, then you can keep up with it. The servant of the Lord is marked here as distinct from the nation Israel. Here you have the the servant to bring Jacob. That distinction is clear. In Mark 13, he writes, He will send his angels to gather together his elect from the four winds and from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. And so the Lord is going to be, is, is always aggressive, looking to reach souls. And if souls aren't saved, it's not because the Lord is not at work. It's because the people are non-responsive. Um, our Lord could not minister to the Gentiles until he first ministered to the Jews. And that's what's being said here in verses 5 and 6, and that we find that in the Gospels. Christ says, go to the lost sheep of Israel and stay away from those Gentiles. Uh, not because he didn't want to reach them, because the timing was off and it would have been a complete flop. Uh, when we get to the book of Acts, we see just how difficult it is and, and what is involved and how you have to have a, the, the, under, the understanding of Scripture to be able to make a case for this Messiah long announced arriving and fulfilling the prophecies that he did. The Bible is a Jewish book, and the first believers and apostles were Jews. Uh, Gentiles would not have heard the gospel without God using the Jewish people. And if God had anything to say for most of, well, for the Bible's history, he said it to a Jew in the Hebrew language. And that didn't change until Pentecost came, and it was a gradual change. In Romans chapter 11, Paul is trying to tell the Gentiles, don't be throwing the Jewish people under the bus. You have a lot to be grateful for. The scripture knowledge that you're getting, where the stuff is coming from, don't write them off. God's not finished with them as a people. Again, as individuals, you know, the wicked are the wicked, whether they're, regardless of their ethnicity. Uh, Verse 6, indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore and preserve the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. 
Well, that's pretty clear, it seems. He's just saying, listen, um, you're not going to waste who you are on just one people. You will be sent to everyone. Uh, So it says, it is a small thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles. You would think that in the days of Paul, when they were so against the Gentiles, you would think this verse would come to mind and tell them that God loves the Gentiles too. He wants to save them also. But religious people have a way of dismissing things from their scripture that they don't care for. And uh, that is largely what took place. That is why they failed as his instruments, as his servants, to reach beyond Canaan. They succeeded as servants in driving the Canaanites out of what we know as the promised land. They just did not succeed in taking the light of Yahweh to those outside the promised land. And they had certainly enough commerce with other peoples to do so, and and, and therefore contact. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation, the unfailing servant of Isaiah 42. The New Testament applies this verse to Christ and his Work, his redemptive work. You younger Christians, you should know that word redemption, the saving of lost souls at the cost of the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Acts 13, uh, we don't have enough time. You know, I had cut out so many verses to kind of show how it all was just interwoven together. But Acts 13, for so the Lord has commanded us. Paul and Barnabas, as they were preaching to the Jews, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And they resisted him on that. Joel had even mentioned this. Joel probably wrote before Isaiah. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Of course, that's continued to the last chapter of the Bible. (laughs) Whosoever wills, let him come. And you have people out there saying that you, you, you can't, you don't have a choice. You have, the Bible doesn't say that. And I rejoice that it says, God says, I'm going to treat you like a, a created being in whom I have put enough ability to reason with, to speak to me. Were it not for Jesus, who would have reached for the Gentiles? Peter? John, Stephen, Paul, not one of them. We learn from the New Testament that the ingredient missing from Judaism was love. They had no love for the Gentiles. We fast forward just a little ways in the New Testament. We find a church at Ephesus, that darling church that God had invested so much. Apollos, uh, Paul, John, uh, Timothy, That church received so many solid Bible teachers and holy men, and yet they lost their first love. It's a very dangerous thing. And as I mentioned, there's no light coming out of Judaism today. Uh, Unless you want a system of rules and rituals, you can have at it. But where's the love? Um, You know, I tell people sometimes about a a good church that if, if the preaching is solid and the people are loving, it's going to be really hard to beat that looking for a church. Uh, what else do you want? Well, how about a Picasso over here? That would really be lovely. Uh, how about a little hors d'oeuvres next to it? I mean, what do you want? What, what's a church to you? It's an assembly of believers who are coming to worship God and to receive. Except for the unbeliever, a Christian should come to church wanting to hear from God. And if they say, well, I can do that at home in my living room. Well, God says, no, you can't do it as well. Because I have given some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers for the edification, for the work of ministry. So don't give me that stuff about uh, how I can do these things in isolation. The Bible doesn't agree with you. In fact, it comes hard against you on those points. Now, maybe you've got loved ones who have those views. Well, you can still love them, but you don't have to agree with them when they disagree with what the Scripture clearly teaches. Learn to stand your ground if if that ground you're standing on is God's Word. And in love, 
Uh, it's hard sometimes if you're passionate about something, you come off as being angry. So I'm told. <laughs> so uh, I'm glad there are other, and I like to tell this story. I don't remember what, I remember his face, David Rosales. Um, his, he said his son was watching him on television preaching, but he, the son had the volume down. I wonder why. And, but he said, he said when this, David got home, he said, Dad, you look so angry. You know what I'm saying? I'm preaching. You looked angry. Well, you know, the passion comes out. You know, old pastors used to do stuff like this. You're going to hell. <laughs> we don't do that. We could if you request, if you make a request. Anyway, uh, back to this, the, verse 7. Thus says Yahweh, Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One. That goes beyond Israel, that, that, that Holy One. To him whom man despises. To him whom the nations abhors. To the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship. Because of Yahweh who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and He has chosen you. And as this Messiah develops, we find that He's got divine attributes, that He is indeed God. And that's what makes it hard to, you know, well, who's speaking? Yahweh, God, Father, who's who? And well, that's the triune nature of God, how He presents Himself to us. I think if there was, well, when God said, well, how am I going to contact the people that I've created. Well, the Son is the solution. And the Holy Spirit, the vehicles of God uh, in person to interact with us. Acts chapter 3, talking about their despising him. Peter is preaching. He said, you denied the Holy One. And he's preaching to the Jews. The just. And asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Now that, Peter led a lot of them to Christ by just telling them the truth. He didn't sugarcoat anything with them. And when he did sugarcoat something with them, he got in trouble, trying to act like he didn't want to be with the Gentiles. And God sent Paul on him. Uh, what a remarkable story. Uh, and yet, how can you not love Paul? I mean, Peter. If, if you had to take a, a flight, let's say an hour flight, Make it three hours. And Peter and Paul were on that plane. Who would you want to sit with if you had to sit with them? Well, if I wanted to discuss theology, I probably would sit with Paul. But if, if I was feeling sorry for myself, I'd want to sit with Peter. Not that Paul was, you know, mean or anything. But Peter, we just know he was goofed up a lot of times. <laughs> we can identify with that. Whereas Paul just seems sometimes just be so solid. Anyway, more to Jesus than being Messiah. 1 John 4, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as a Savior of the world, which matches what is being said, the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One. He is the Holy One beyond Israel without ever forgetting Israel. I don't know how you can be a Christian and, and, and have a... And not love the Jews. I mean, you don't have to love what each individual does, but as a people, you're rooting for them all the time. Because you know where they stand. They are God's time clock, and it's painful to watch what they're going through right now. But this is so far is nothing to what they have been through and what lays ahead. To him, it says here in verse 7, to him who uh, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nations abhors his own people. Uh, they are part of the, they'd made the demand for his, his death, his crucifixion. Isaiah will develop this in 53. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. See that part, acquainted with grief? As you get older, maybe some of you just sick of life. You know, you're grieved by life, maybe. Well, so was the Lord, a man of sorrows, acquainted. He knew the deal. Of, of, of what the curse has done to, to mankind. Isaiah goes on to say, And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Even armed with these scripture verses, they missed it. 
It says he is the servant of rulers. Well, he came as a servant. He could have come as a sovereign, and that would have been the end. But he did not. He says, render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and give to God the things that belong to God. And he stood before Herod. He allowed himself to be humiliated there. He stood before Pontius Pilate. He tried to reach Pontius Pilate, but Pilate didn't want it. And Pilate dismissed him. Well, what is truth? Well, you're looking at the truth. But Pilate didn't care to, to, to act on it. Philippians chapter 2 talks about his servanthood and his deity at the same time. The king's... Shall see and arise, princes shall also worship. Well, he is the, ult- uh, he is the ultimate, and at his triumph, uh, uh, all this will change. Um, moving forward, because there's so much information here. Verse 8, thus says Yahweh, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to, to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate Heritage. Well, at the right moment, I will act in the acceptable time. Acceptable to who? Well, to God, of course. Second Corinthians, where he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable, acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So there's a sense of urgency in, in these words quoted in Second Corinthians, which are built on these words here in Isaiah 49. That um, now is the acceptable time when it comes to receiving Christ as Lord. And the day of salvation, I have helped you. Well, he expressed full throttle his work against sin. And his whole life was about that. The cross of Christ speaks of this. To restore the earth? Well, who but God could do that? And this is Messiah, of course. And he is going to restore the earth to that um, Eden-like environment to cause them to inherit desolate things. Well, this, I think, goes beyond the Jews and the promised land, which was their inheritance. uh, But it uh, does not rule it out. In the millennial age, there will be radical geographical changes to Jerusalem, uh, all improvements that will be done by the Lord. And uh, the the whole world, the desert desert will bloom again. Radical environmental changes are coming, um, and they will not be man-made. Verse 9, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourselves... They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on the desolate heights. He's giving a little bit more detail about what's going on. Verse 10, they shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them, for he who has mercy on them will lead them, even by the springs of water he shall guide them. Verse 11, I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highways shall be elevated. Well, none of that's happened yet. That's still to be uh, to, to take place, and it will take place when he returns. These, these promises exceed anything that took place when the captives were repatriated to Israel. Revelation 7, verse 16, They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. So there John is referencing this verse and applying it to um, uh, the the age, the great tribulation age and beyond. Um, The apostles did not understand any of this, as we do, by simply reading it. And neither do you and I. The Holy Spirit taught them after Jesus opened their eyes to understand. And so we read in Luke 24, verse 45, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Well, if he doesn't still do that, then we're not going to figure it out. We are dependent on God to help us. So when you have your morning devotions or whenever you have your devotions, we pray, Lord, can you open this up for me? And acknowledging that uh, if, I, if I am left alone to this, I'm, I'm going to make mis- unnecessary mistakes. Um, my prayer 
you know, after all these years and all the study, is not so much can you give me the understanding, not that that doesn't mean I'm, I'm now pompous or anything, uh, though I might be. Uh, anyway, the, the, now I ask God, can you keep it fresh for me? Because after you've been through it, you know, the danger is now, you know, okay, I read that. You saw it, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it just loses, if, if you're not careful, but not, if you love it, though. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. Uh, I believe that. And just getting it done sometimes a challenge to be content with his provision. John chapter 14, verse 26. But the helper, and this is the Holy Spirit, because he says it. But the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Now that teaching you all things is not an instant thing all the time. It takes years and just constantly, you know, some, even now, verses dawn on me. That's it. I just had one the other day and uh, from Revelation, and I, I hope I can get to preach it. It's like, that's, that's it. That's what that, it's always bugged me, that thing. Now I got it. You say, what is it? I can't tell you. Because then if I preach it, you'll be, oh, heard that. Alan, Alan Redpath, you know, looking at this verse, uh, I, I, I don't know, he has commentary on Isaiah. He says, where it says, I will make each of my mountains a road and my highways shall be elevated. Redpath says, if I can see only a mountain filling my whole horizon, when I reach its foot, I will discover there is a path. Well, um, I agree with that. You know, God prepares the pathways of our lives. But we does, we're not... We cannot take those pathways if we don't want to. Verse 12, surely these shall come from afar. Look, uh, surely these shall come from afar. Look, exclamation, those from the north and the west and these from the land of Sinem. Well, now he's talking about uh, Israel being, continuing to talk about Israel being restored. But now he's talking about repatriation. Now, some think Sinem is Aswan, Egypt. But it really is more likely China, although you, you, you can't be 100% sure on that. We just don't have enough information. But we can safely say that verse 12 foresees converts drawn from far places, distant lands, coming back to Israel. Um, so these verses, of course, are going beyond Babylon and other uh, in fact, we're living the prophecy now. We're living the fulfillment of God repatriating the promised land with his Jews from all over the world. Uh, it's uh, exciting that we're in the days of, that there's prophecy being fulfilled right before our, our eyes and mainly in Israel the, as, as, as a, the nation. Verse 13, sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, O earth. And break out in singing, O mountains, for Yahweh has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. This has got to, this must have been really tough stuff to, to go through, you know, what the Jews have gone through over this millennium, just to, to hear these verses of God's care and yet suffering so much. And it's just because, you know, it's, a, it's there in the Bible doesn't mean it's easy to point out, as last Wednesday we were talking about, they should have known better. It wasn't, you know, I told you so kind of thing, but at the, you can't dismiss the scripture just because it's painful to see it being fulfilled. Um, so to counter these things, we, we follow what the scripture says. Pray for, for Jerusalem. We're going to get to some of those promises of God's care for his people and his um, disappointment his judgment against those who mess with Israel. Anyway, God, um, uh, God, as I said before, God warned Israel they would suffer for disobedience, and he warns the church that you will suffer for obedience. Verse 14, But Zion said, Yahweh has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. So now, the Zion is personified in contrast to Israel. Same thing, but it's just as the conversation flows... God says, rejoice. And they say, why? You've forsaken me. 
Uh, Isaiah mentions Zion 47 times in his writings, more than anybody. And the evolution of Zion uh, started out, you know, as the word is a barren place. It became a stronghold of David. Um, the survivors in Jerusalem. And finally, we talk of Zion, we speak of Israel. Though there are Jews, there are religious Jews that believe that the Jews should not be in Israel. That only Messiah you should be able to put them. And that's why you may be seeing Jews not supporting Israel. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you just shake your head. Religion is dangerous stuff. If you do, it's, it's like it's gasoline with fire if you're not careful. Anyway, instead of rejoicing, they're lamenting with accusations. And then God responds back to them, verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. So here is his answer. It's interesting that instead of rebuking that sentiment, you've given up on me, God. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've gotten some, some, to a place in life where you just feel God has abandoned you. And you feel, you know, you want to, you know, strike out at him and say, you've forsaken me. You said you'd never forsake me and you did. Well, God is saying, I'm, I have not forsaken you. But this is the part I want to bring out. He doesn't rebuke them. He assures and consoles them. Here's a wonderful opportunity where he could have turned legalistic on them. And said, what? After all I've done for you? Uh, giving you the prophecy? And sometimes he does kind of ramp it up like that. But here... He says, no, I, I, I'm not going to give up on you. The only thing that God forgets is sin that has been washed away by the blood of the Lamb. That is Old Testament and that is New Testament theology. Psalm 103, verse 12, Micah 7, 19. Uh, anyway, of course, God emphasized as the Father in Scripture. But here, there's the, the, uh, he, he, he identifies with a loving mother. Verse 16, see, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Um, the inscription on the hands. Well, whatever else that might mean, a New Testament Christian will immediately think of the cross. And I don't think they'll be out of bounds. What God is saying to his people at this time is that uh, you, you are inscribed. This is, you know carved in stone my care for you. I'm not going to ever let you uh, be destroyed completely. Um, his death on a cross vanquished uh, sin, of course, but that story has to be rolled out to, to sinners. They, they just, you know, to let them know how God forgives, why he forgives, how he works with us, what he is after, what is the purpose of life. When Paul got saved, he said, who are you, Lord? He wanted to know the character of God, his identity. And then he said, what do you want me to do? Well, he needed God to tell him those two things. And because the Lord gave it to him in steps, go to the street, you know, on the street straight, go to the house that he marked out for him. And then he unfold the next phase to him. And then he continued to do that until he called him home. Um, your walls, he said, are before me. Interesting that he doesn't say your ruins are before me. God is always looking beyond uh, what's going on. Verse 19, your sons shall make haste, your, your destroyers, and those who laid you waste shall go away from you. Again, that flair for understatement. <laughs> Nehemiah... When he led a group back to Israel to rebuild the walls, we read this simple verse in Nehemiah 6. So the wall was finished in 52 days. Yeah, but in those 52 days, he was bombarded with death threats, with resistance. With, hey, we can't do it. I mean, he just was a, he's a consummate leader, Nehemiah. He's just cool as a cucumber. No nonsense. My, my favorite thing, probably in, in the... <laughs> Book of Nehemiah. Uh, maybe I can just find it and read it. Why not? We got a few minutes, and I'm almost said everything I need to say. Uh, so, this is when he had come back to Jerusalem, and he realized that they were just breaking God's word all over again. 
and Nehemiah was going to deal with them. And so he, he says, um, So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them, and pulled out their hair. And made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. You know, we've been through this. This is what got us in this mess. The whole collapse of Jerusalem by just mocking God's word. He pulled out their hair. I think that that, that should have been in the New Testament. It, it should have been. He has given some to be apostles, pastors, for the work of ministry, for the pulling out of hair. And they're looking at me. It looks like I'm a victim of Nehemiah. But anyway, uh, just lessons there to be had. Now we come to verse 18. Lift up your eyes. Look around and see. All these gather together and come to you as I live, says Yahweh. You shall surely clothe yourselves with them. With them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does for your waste and desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. Verse 20. The children will have, the children you will have after you have lost the others will say again in your ears, this place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. So this, of course, um, is beyond the exiles returning from Babylon. This is the restoration of Israel in the millennial kingdom. And he's just sort of painting a picture for us uh, for uh, what's going to happen with the future generations coming back to Israel. Jerusalem will be inhabited because Jerusalem will not be forgotten. Judah will be rebuilt. The promised land will be expanded. Um, verse 21, Then you will say in your heart, Who has begotten these for me? Since I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive, and wandering to and fro. And who has brought these up? There I was, left alone. But these, where were they? And thus says the Lord Yahweh, Verse 22, Behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. And so Zion is astonished that they survived, that they have been restored, and that the population is exploding and people, Jews are coming from all over. Uh, earlier he referenced, you know, you're going to say... Again, it's not enough land for us. Well, that goes back to Joshua chapter 17. When the tribe of Ephraim, the strong, one of the stronger tribes, said, you know, the land we have is not big enough for our tribe. And Joshua said, yeah, it is. In the hill country, go up and take it. He said, well, they have iron chariots in the valleys and we can't do this. And he said, well, you said you were strong. Well, go take it. And that was that. Well, that's a reference here to... Those days where they said, "Hey, we don't have enough land," and uh, in in the millennial kingdom, they will get their land, and there will be that many people in the promised land. Uh, so J Jerusalem is astonished. Zion is you know, uh, personified again. Isaiah forty three six. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Verse twenty three. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. You uh, then you will know that I am Yahweh, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Well, of course, that's still future, but what he's saying is the world will adore Israel. Stop ganging up on them. I mean, we just see this crazy stuff. Israel is attacked in a merciless way, and you got these you have Turkey saying, Oh yeah, well, we're gonna come to the defense of the people who are trying to kill you. Are you out of your minds? We have no don't we have a right? What if we did that to you? Good idea. Yeah, you'd be going and bothering us. It's, it's demonic. It's demonic, the treatment of Israel by kings, by leaders, heads of state. But the time is coming where it's going to be a complete reversal. The enemies will be vanquished and humbled, and 
uh, and converted. Uh, those who survived the judgment of Christ, because when he comes back, he's, he's going to dole out a lot of judgment, and it's going to be a thinning of the herd. Uh, but there will still be appointed leaders. There will still be cities. There will still be construction. There will still be commerce and trade and things like that. Uh, there will still be farming. Uh, things will be much better, though. This reference to them bowing down and the, you know, the dust and all, that, that's, that's how the vanquished treated those who conquered them. And it's a picture that they would have understood. Verse 24. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of the righteous be delivered? Verse 25. But thus says Yahweh, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you. I will save your children. So he, this question, you know, he puts out, bottom line is, no, I'm going to protect. The whole book of Esther is about God protecting his people. And it, uh, uh, as a prelude to the ultimate rescue and restoration of Israel. So we go back to Genesis now. In the beginning, God speaking to Abraham, the patriarch of the Jews. Because you remember, Isaac was the child of promise, not Ishmael. The eyes are on Isaac and his descendants, Jacob, not Esau, and then the descendants of Jacob, the twelve sons. So, uh, Genesis, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in all the families of the earth, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, that's Messiah. He has come as a Jew. Which is just thought of, what, why do you find some professed Christians anti-Jewish when the Messiah came as a Jew? This is a crazy people that come up with these things. Zechariah 2.8. Did I look angry? <laughs> For thus says Yahweh of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. You mess with Israel, you instantly, I mean, again, you have to separate, you have to understand, if a Jewish guy is, is, is going around trying to shoot people, it is totally right to shoot him if he's committing crimes. But what we don't do is mess with the nation and, and you know, try to get rid of them and, you know, push them into the sea like Islam wants to, wants to do. Make no mistake, that's what they all want to do. Zechariah 12.2 Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. Well, I believe that. I believe in the salvation that the Bible offers me, and I believe everything else the Bible says. And so I'm not going to say, well, I don't like that one, so I'm just going to try to change it. Oh, he's not talking about the Jewish people. That's really the church. No, that's the Jewish people, the, the ethnic Jews, the descendants of Jacob. Uh, and so, yeah, <clears throat> pray for Jerusalem. Because we understand that it is Satan who targets them. Verse 26, I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as, the sweet, as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, Yahweh, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So they're the, resolving their failures to bring the light I'm going to close with two verses and one comment. Psalm 40, verse 2, talking about resolving failures. He also brought me up out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet on a rock and established my steps. That's what God has done for me. Only the true church sees this. Only the true Christians can see this in Scripture for what it is. Zechariah fourteen sixteen, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, which would be Christ, because it says it, uh, to worship the king, uh, Yahweh of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. 
And so Yahweh is God. We find him treated as God in the Old Testament. And there we find him reigning in Jerusalem. And we find the world uh, celebrating there uh, at the religious feast of tabernacles, which was the big feast of the Jews, uh, which, which came after the Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement. There was this sort of this festival for a whole week. Well, it was a festival. Let, let's pray. Our Father, um, so many things in your word, difficult to bring uh, many of them out. And yet, they all, they all contribute to strengthening us as believers. We thank you for uh, leaving us these scriptures. And we pray you find us always getting better at applying them. May you get us home safely in Jesus' name. Amen.